Welcome everyone to the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco. This here is a very special episode. This is the 100th episode of the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast. Before we jump into this week's guest, I wanted to just give a couple thank yous. First off, I wanted to thank you, the listeners, for all of your support along the way. Without you, I honestly, I couldn't be doing this, you know, without the support the encouragement along the way. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your wrestling enjoyment. We'll say, does that make sense? Wrestling enjoyment. Um, I honestly, I really appreciate everything along the way from the messages, those who bought t-shirts, the support. Thank you so, so much for allowing this podcast to become what it has. I also wanted to thank all of the guests that I've had up on up until this point. It has been an absolute honor and pleasure to be able to share your stories, to talk wrestling, and to just have some great conversations. So thank you so much to everyone. Now this week for the 100th episode, I wanted to do something that really, or I don't want to say do something, I want to have a guest on that really encapsulates Winnipeg wrestling. So this week on the podcast, I am joined by Hotshot Danny Duggan. Danny Duggan has been a part of the Winnipeg wrestling scene and Canadian independent wrestling scene for many years. I think everyone who's listening is familiar with him and a lot of, I think most of Canada is familiar with who he is. So when I first had the chance to talk to Danny about doing it, doing this, um, it came from doing one of the rigside rapid fires. When I asked him about his favorite venue to perform and he said Corican Hall. So I really thought that it would be a good opportunity to share his story in wrestling to talk about things that maybe a lot of people don't know. So we're going to jump right into it. We talk about uh, Danny's career. We talk about his uh, touring in Japan, the struggles that have come with promoting shows all across Canada and what that's become. We also get to uh, hear about what the pandemic took from the wrestling scene here about the possible CWE ROH talent share sort of thing that was supposed to happen before everything sort of went down so let's jump into the the uh let's jump into this week's episode this week on the Grainmaker wrestling podcast hotshot danny duggan now you got your start in wrestling in the early 2000s and things have changed drastically since then what was it like when you first got involved um compared to now um Man, in terms of, can we, sorry, can you ask that question one more time? Yeah, we'll for start, sure. Start, start right from the top. I had a brain fart. I apologize. Got lost, lost in the thought there. You got started wrestling in the early 2000s, and I mean, things have changed since then. What was it like for yourself getting started in wrestling? Uh, when I personally started, it was still kind of the Wild West. Um, there were a lot of wrestling promotions and a lot of wrestlers in Winnipeg. Um, I first got involved with local wrestling in 1999. I was only 12, 13 years old. I started helping out at local shows, ringing the bell, carrying ring jackets in the back, all that kind of stuff. And when I started doing that in 99, there was two companies. There was River City Wrestling and the CWF. Mm -hmm. 
Of course, in 1999, that's also the Attitude Era, and wrestling was very popular and very cool, so it didn't matter how good of quality of a wrestling show it was, there were lots of people there to see it because wrestling was the it thing. Um, So as a result of that, everybody wanted to get involved in professional wrestling because wrestling was awesome. So by the time 2002, 2003 rolled around, when I started wrestling, there had to be close to 10 promotions in Winnipeg, Okay, and there had to be well over 100 wrestlers. Like It drastically changed in just a couple years span due to the popularity of wrestling on the mainstream scale. Um, so as a result of that, there was a lot of good going on in wrestling, and there was a lot of bad, because a lot of guys were being, you know, very quickly put through just to get more guys on shows, get more guys selling tickets and get their money for training and things of that nature. So it was kind of the wild West and it took many years, honestly, probably six, seven years before it finally started to kind of balance out and get back to some kind of normalcy where the industry could kind of be built with a certain standard in the Winnipeg wrestling markets. Did you notice a lot of people who didn't want the newer, like the newer group coming through, like to hold on to their spot or was it more just getting more people into it just to uh, expand? Um, I, I don't think there was too much pushback. Like there were a lot of veterans around that time. Like I was a young kid who didn't belong in the business when I started, like I was a teenager in a man's (laughs) world. Um, But everyone was very nice and accommodating when they didn't have to be. Um, but I was also, um, you know, minus maybe when I first got involved and had to be kind of straightened up, I was always very respectful and, and appreciative of my opportunities and spots. Not a lot of guys, no, sorry, not everybody was. So there definitely were, there were situations and there were guys that were treated differently and maybe got weeded out a little bit because guys not necessarily wanted to hold on to their spot, but they wanted to hold some kind of integrity mm-hmm. in the business where you, if you didn't have a respect for it, you weren't going to be around very long. Uh, mm-hmm. So there definitely was, um, you know, there was times and there was situations where guys would be coming through who weren't putting in the effort or were making a mockery of the business or possibly being a detriment to the business that the veterans took care of in their own ways. Now, I mean, when you first got in, first started your training, uh, Gene Swan, was it? Gene Swan wasn't my initial trainer. So okay. this is what I mean about kind of being in the Wild West. Like yeah. When I started with River City Wrestling, um, they didn't have a formal wrestling school at the time. So I was refereeing before shows, sorry, I was refereeing shows at 15 and kind of training before them. Um, River City Wrestling was running bi-weekly out of Chalmers Community Center at the time. They were running bi-weekly out of Norquay and they were doing some spot shows here and there. So there was a lot of shows going on, but there was no formal training structure in place. So anybody who was in training We'd show up early, we'd set up the ring, and we'd do all our training beforehand. So we would be training before the shows and uh, – Quite frankly, the people that were training us weren't qualified to be wrestling themselves, (laughs) let alone training. Um, You know, but when you're a young kid getting into business, you don't understand any of that. You just see guys who are wrestlers who are on wrestling shows. You want to be a wrestler on a wrestling show. So you trust that what's being taught to you is is the proper way of doing so. Um, I learned very quickly after starting to wrestle my first few months under that that type of training that I had no idea what the heck I was doing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was doing wrong and, and why it was wrong. But, you know, as somebody who grew up watching wrestling my entire life, I knew what I was doing was terrible. And it didn't reflect the wrestling that I grew up <laughs> watching or wanted to present. Uh, so then I sought out some other training and went with Gene Swan, who had a formal training program uh, with the Canadian Wrestling Federation at the mm-hmm. time. So I went, I was about three, four months into wrestling matches. I probably had a good 30, 40 matches before I actually got into a formal training program uh, where I was then training three to five days a week under Gene, which instantly, you know, changed my mentality and mindset because I was getting the proper, the proper tools to then perform on the job yeah. as I was wrestling as well. 
And I mean, CWF, that was Ernie Todd, correct? At the time, yes. Yeah. And then you had asked, you wrestled for them for a fair amount. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah no. Uh, uh, yeah, Ernie Todd. He's, he's, he's a character. He has, um, he's got a place in Winnipeg uh, wrestling that uh, uh, anytime he gets brought up, I always hear the same sort of reaction. So you know, There was a time, especially when I was breaking in around that time, after I'd worked for Ernie, it didn't matter where on the continent I would go wrestling. It could be anywhere in Canada. It could be in the deepest south of the, of the U.S. And as soon as they said I was from Winnipeg, they'd ask about Ernie Todd and with a... Yeah. Um, and there's there's a good reason for that but with that being said Ernie did allot me a lot of opportunities early on so I, I did get the opportunity uh to complete my formal training under the CWF uh, because of Ernie um so it was the spring of 2003 um as mentioned I was wrestling for River City Wrestling and at the time there was a major change in the insurance industry um and at that that given time in Winnipeg everybody was operating out of Winnipeg community centers yes um because insurance was available to do so something had changed with the insurance business. It was like, I think it was as a result of nine 11, the, the industry the insurance industry had a complete overhaul. So by the time 2003 rolled around rates were through the roof and it just wasn't viable for promoters to be obtaining this insurance that had to be done in community centers anymore. So it pretty much acts all ages wrestling in Winnipeg for a short period of time. Mm -hmm. At that time I was 16 years old. So that was the only place I could wrestle. And River City Wrestling had moved into a bar environment because they didn't have the insurance to operate on this on the city property anymore. Uh, so because of that, that's how I ended up hooking up with Ernie. And Ernie was going on the road and doing a lot of tours across Canada, doing the First Nations communities. So I went from wrestling for for River City, doing the community clubs a couple times a week, to going on the road for multiple weeks at a time with Ernie at 16, 17 years old. And that's really where I got to kind of learn the ropes very quickly and get kind of thrown into the adult world of professional wrestling and figure out, you know, exactly what it is I needed to be doing and how to be doing it. And uh, luckily for me at the time, there was a, a fellow by the name of Kerry Pitbull Brown, who was, was on those tours, who's mm -hmm. in the, you know, a very, very popular wrestler and very famous wrestler in Canadian wrestling circles from his time in Stampede. And of course, down in the U S as well. Um, I got to work with him a lot when I was very young. And that's probably the brightest spot for me working for the Canadian wrestling federation. Cause at that point, Kerry had been around 30 years. He'd done dozens of tours with Japan here I am as a young kid, not knowing nothing about wrestling, getting to get in the ring with him and travel with him every single day. So I really got a, a crash course on professional wrestling. And that was my biggest takeaway from wrestling with the CWF at the time was the opportunity to work with Kerry and other veterans like him uh, that really molded me very early and set me on the right path that I otherwise wouldn't have had if I just would have stayed wrestling in Winnipeg. I think being able to learn from someone like him when you're 16 or 17, being put in that position, I mean, I'm sure that there were other, you know, younger people getting involved that they might not have the same outcome just with who they were, you know, wrestling with, riding with, training with, because you never know, like the type of person that you're with having that sort of stable leadership, we'll say kind of yeah, men helped you mentorship. Yeah. yeah. Mentorship, mentorship. Yeah, hundred percent. Like getting to work with Terry, I was very lucky to get to go on the road with uh, you know Chi Chi Cruz a lot when I was younger. Brian Jewell, uh, guys who had a lot of full time wrestling experience, who were kind of like the the last soldiers of the territory era that got to break in and learn under that that structure and then bring it to the new generation. So I got a really 
good education of learning the old traditional style of professional wrestling from guys like Kerry, Chichi Cruz, and talent like that. But also at a time where a new modern style was being presented in pro wrestling, you had young guys like Mensalo and Kenny Omega was in his first couple of years. So you kind of had this, this blend of all styles of professional wrestling that were coming to the forefront that I kind of got the opportunity to work with and, 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 and mold myself off of. So it was a really, really unique time that I'm really grateful for. Um, because as you mentioned, a lot of guys don't get that opportunity um, either by choice or circumstance. Mm-hmm. And as someone who's been very lucky to travel, you know, pretty much full time, the majority of my 20 year career, you see it all the time going to different local markets or you'll see a young guy who's got a ton of potential, um, you know, sky's the limit, but unfortunately he never leaves the city limit. And because of that, that potential halts very quickly. And you'll see someone with natural ability and, and just so much that can be done if they just took the proper steps forward. But then they get stuck in this bubble where they're wrestling the same talent month in and month out. So they end up having a great match with their friends and they can have that great match each and every time out on a monthly basis, but they never get the opportunity to work with talent from other territories and other regions. And most importantly, in front of different crowds. And that's how you get really good at this. So, mm-hmm. so that was something that I, that I was really lucky to get to experience because that's really how you, you get good. Like when I looked early on in my career, like, like I said, 17 years old, 18 years old, by the time I was 18, I'd already done multiple tours um, of the United States, Tennessee, Georgia, New England, places like that, of course, across Canada with guys like Kerry. So like, I was picking up, just different styles and different interpretations of pro wrestling from so many different people and putting it all together to make my own package mm-hmm. uh, where a lot of local talent don't either take opportunities for themselves to do that or don't know how to do that. So they get stuck, you know, learning from a set couple guys and those guys can be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not to say they're just necessarily getting just, you know, bad feedback or bad advice, but they're getting very limited feedback and very limited advice. And in, in order to get really good at this, you have to work with so many different guys and hear so many different philosophies on pro wrestling and really pick and choose what works for you and how to apply it to yourself to be good. Um, and most importantly, just getting in front of different crowds. Um, every crowd is different, but, Generally speaking, outside of some of the key major Canadian markets, Canadian wrestling has a very traditionally based pro wrestling audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, they like old school professional wrestling, yay boo pro wrestling, uh, you know, however you want to refer to it or reference it as. Um, but if you start going down to the Midwest US or you go up to New England or the New York area or you go down to Tennessee, those crowds expect and want something different and you need to be able to provide them something different in order to get over and survive in those markets. Um, if you don't have the ability to do that and you just perform the same match you perform all the time, no matter where you are, it doesn't, it doesn't translate and you mm-hmm. don't get very far ahead and you usually don't get asked back because your match didn't stand out and didn't provide the audience what they're looking for in that given market. So um, de- definitely something to that. Well, you had mentioned, I mean, 17 and you're going out touring that's, you know, early two thousands, when it's not the same luxury as now with the internet where, you know, you can, you know, find where you want to go with the, you know, click of a mouse. Uh, when I talked to Tony Kazina a few months back, he, he was in the same sort of thing where he went up and traveled all over and, you know, you're printing out the maps and going. That is a, you know, night and day difference from now. And that, that's a huge influence on your career. Oh, oh, big time. And, uh, you know, luckily the internet was just in its infancy in terms of, you know, how it really propelled independent wrestling when I was breaking in. So we did get to kind of utilize certain aspects of in terms of there being websites and a database of some of the promotions. But, you know, you mentioned traveling, like 
you know, we had it pretty good and we're pretty privileged now because you just put anything in your GPS and it'll bring you right to the spot. Mm-hmm. You know, luckily I just missed the generation of actually pulling up the physical map, but we were pretty close. Like I remember doing trips across, you know, from Winnipeg to Boston with map, map quest printouts. You literally <laughs> have like, you would have 28 different pages printed out. Yeah. And you're like, all right, this is how we're getting to Boston. And if you missed one turn on the highway, you had no idea where you're going and where you would end up. And you'd be adding hours to your trip yeah. because you weren't looking at the physical map like you should have, like, a, like an intelligent person would. <laughs> you were relying on this piece of technology. So luckily, it's definitely improved. So I even remember the first GPS systems that came out, like the Garmin ones you put on your car. I'm yeah. sure they're still around, but very limited. Like when those first came out, those were not efficient whatsoever. Like no. you would not maintain a signal in in many major markets you would travel through especially if there was a lot of frequency going through it so you'd be driving and it would cut out and you'd have no idea which which exit to take and which interstate to go on and you would end up spending just as much time being lost as you would going to your your destination so i'm glad things have definitely advanced (laughs) in that regard because traveling is much more efficient now you uh you had mentioned being such a like a part of wrestling in winnipeg and i know you were a very big part of the pcw lid shows back in the early 2000s um when they were bringing in lots of different guys from there you were you know with awe they were kind of trying something different you know doing their pay-per-view style thing you know branching out to wfx and all of that what was your experience like you know working throughout all that um, my, my fondest memories of those times were actually the partying that went with it <laughs> back when, back when the, back when the lid nightclub was open to be 18 years old, wrestling weekly at a university bar, we had some fun, um, probably some fun. I can't tell with my wife down the hall, but um, <laughs> it was, uh, definitely, definitely a good time that, that molded me as a wrestler and as a young man, um, growing up in the world, uh, the, the weekly, the weekly lid shows were great. Like I started doing those when like I started with PCW, I was on their first shows. I think I ref their first official shows out in like Minnedosa and Portage the Prairie um, at like 14, 15 years old. And then they, if you, if you find the footage of their commencement of cool show with Eddie Guerrero, you'll see me with a horrible haircut at 14 years old. I think ringing the bell or bringing the ring jackets to the back. Um, but a couple of years later I was wrestling and I uh, would get involved on the PCW shows. I think I did my first ones as an in-ring performer there at 17 years old. So they had to sneak me into the bar, um, which you can probably get away with a lot easier now than you could then, but all the promoters are at each other's throats, just looking for ways to screw the other guy and get their shows canceled and bring them negative press. So I had to wrestle under a mask at 17 years old for PCW just to be allowed in the building. And then anytime the liquor commission showed up, they had to hide me in the back to make sure I didn't get ID. Um, but shortly after I, I did turn 18 and then would, uh, I would come back to PCW shortly after the first AWE run. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, rest, I wrestled with PCW when I was 17, shortly after Mike Davidson started in 2005 with a couple pay-per-view events. He ran out of the University of Manitoba and he did some TV tapings later that year for the Fight Network. Um, and then when that all shut down, um, I went back to PCW and they were running weekly wrestling shows at the time. And that was, that was a big part of my development early. And I think for a lot of guys locally, because you only get good at this, doing it as often as you possibly can. Um, and that was something PCW was really good for at the time is they were offering, they were offering weekly wrestling. So every Thursday night we had a place to wrestle and get our reps in, you know, a lot of times there wasn't always a lot of people there, but they were always enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. And the good thing about that time is you had a whole bunch of young guys that really were enthusiastic about the future and about 
you know, their potential to, to do something in the business. So you had guys that were going out there and working really hard and, and busting their ass and, and finding their way in the world. Like, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Like that's 2006, 2007. So it wasn't too far past that big boom where you had so many guys get into the business. So at that point you had the guys that wanted to be there that stuck around, you know, so you had mental, you had Kenny Omega, Ross skills, Chad Tatum, um, you know, then you still had veterans like Adam Knight, Robbie Royce that were working with guys, Shane Madison, Will, like there were so many top end talent that were still like very young early on in their career and full of piss and vinegar, um, you know, with a point to prove. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were really fun shows to be on because, you know, when you have a locker room full of young guys, there's definitely some testosterone flowing and there's some ego involved in a healthy way where we all want to go out there and bust our ass and have the best match and be better than the next guy. So a yeah. lot of those shows were really, really good and probably way better for, you know, way better than they deserve being for how many people were there sometimes, but the talent was so good and so driven um, that you, you know, every show was can't miss because guys were going out there and busting their ass each and every time. And I think that really, really helped kind of set the tone, uh, you know, for a good caliber of wrestling in Winnipeg. Um, because it was always kind of hit or miss the quality you'd get just based on the the blend of different styles and 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 generations you had in the early 2000s and now we were kind of getting a more solidified vision of what wrestling could be and that was really kind of coming to the forefront in the in the mid 2000s especially with guys like omega and, and that style being more present and then pcw were bringing in like tna x division guys at the time so that was the first time those mark like the winnipeg market was really getting their first taste of that style of pro wrestling. So it was completely new. It was completely fresh. There was a lot of excitement with it and it really kind of molded what Winnipeg wrestling would end up being. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to talk about the formation of CWE, uh, how that came to be and uh, just your involvement with it. Oh man, that's a loaded question. Um, well, first and foremost, um, you know, I just wanted to do something different. It was, uh, you know, we, we launched in January 2009. Um, at that point, I'd been wrestling for about six years and traveling pretty frequently. Like, I'd covered pretty much most of the continent at that point um, and wrestling at home as much as I could in between. Um, so I had, I had um, a lot of experience wrestling in different markets and seeing different products and different styles of pro wrestling. And I felt that a lot of it wasn't being presented or offered in Winnipeg. I felt like the promoters here were very complacent. Mm-hmm. Um, they were offering work, which was great. And, and um, you know, it was appreciated, but there didn't seem to be any drive to grow or get any bigger. It was like, we have our show every week or we have our show every month. Whoever shows up, shows up. That's great. There was no desire for growth there was no um and that was the other thing too like as mentioned earlier you know it was uh you know we were getting stuck in a in a bubble of we were wrestling good guys but we were always wrestling each other over and over and over and you only get so good wrestling your friends all the time or wrestling the same talent pool and nobody was making an effort to bring in talent from outside not only to improve the talent that was here but hopefully network and get guys out and get them opportunities elsewhere so that's kind of why i started cwe is because I was wrestling on these local shows and there was just complacency. There was no desire for anything more. So it was kind of, it was kind of defeating because you were, you were, you weren't, the promoters weren't putting in an effort to go and promote, to get extra people in the building. They weren't bringing in any talent to bring anything different. They were just satisfied with what was at the time and not that what was, was bad, but it just was, it was what it was. And it was always going to be that. Um, So in terms of, you know, being a young guy who had aspirations of, traveling the world more 
and getting opportunity to work with different talent, I knew that wasn't going to be presented in my home market. And I thought that was a missed opportunity. So I'd go and do these other shows in other places and you'd be in a locker room and there'd be a carload from the West Coast, East Coast, Midwest. And there'd be a lot of good guys and those shows were always a lot of fun and they were really good. You always learn something. And on top of it, you always networked with somebody from a different area, which who would end up then getting you booked out in their area and vice versa. So there was a lot of good stuff going on. And then in Winnipeg, we were kind of just hitting a dead end where none of that was happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other thing I noticed in my travels, um, and, and now that has been proven that guys have actually gone out, Winnipeg has some really good talent. Mm-hmm. Um, like some, especially at that time, like a lot of really young guys with a lot of potential. Um, and, and it's really unfortunate more guys didn't get the opportunity to shine. Um, but you know, just Winnipeg being a geographical dead ends, completely other story altogether. But, um, there's a lot of really good guys here. And I realized traveling as a man, if these guys were getting the opportunities elsewhere, Winnipeg would be viewed in a completely different light because up to that point, Winnipeg was kind of a joke to people because yeah. of a lot of the silly politics that were going on here and just internet silliness and Ernie Todd and his bullshit. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff that went on here. Like people looked at Winnipeg as lesser than, um, but the more I traveled and the more I worked with guys, it's like, no man, our, our top guys are just as good, if not better than these guys, but nobody's ever going to know it because they're not getting the opportunity to work with other talent. So I kind of wanted to create a platform for myself and my friends and other guys that I felt took the business seriously to get the opportunity to work with other wrestlers and hopefully, you know, learn something, become a better professional here at home, or if they wanted to make a contact and make an opportunity for themselves to get out and, and wrestle somewhere else and not be stuck here. And, you know, we can fast forward. We've been going on 14 years now this January and, you know, through CWE and contacts that were made, wrestlers have wrestled for WWE, Ring of Honor, Impact. They've gone to Japan. They've gone to Mexico. They've gone to Germany. They've gone to China. Um, and, and, and I'm sure I'm missing some places. So we went from Winnipeg wrestlers, you know, really, really doing nothing with themselves to getting an opportunity to kind of travel the world and get international experience and get major league opportunities that were never allotted before. So that's something I'm really proud of because that was one of the initial reasons why we got it started in the first place you you mentioned you know networking and bringing different guys in and i think that is one thing that i'm always impressed by going back and looking at some of the cards and seeing who was on there and seeing where they are today seeing you know five years ago and um uh kaido kaiomiya from noah pro wrestling noah who's their world champion right now wrestled on cwe shows you you wrestled with them and to see that it just blows my mind he was wrestling in central canada in front of 100 people like you know you know just years ago and now he's you know one of the biggest stars in japan and that's that's crazy and there was time like you know times have changed with the pandemic we haven't quite got back to the model we'd like to because there's been many factors that have prevented it Mm -hmm. um that will hopefully be resolved one day um but like those pre-pandemic tours like we had wrestlers from japan on and there's one tour we had wrestlers from seven or eight different countries on one tour yeah you had japan germany belgium mexico england um there was a couple it was there was a lot and we looked around the locker room and it was like this this is a super show and that was that was even including the guys from ring of honor that were on the shows the guys mm-hmm. from impact were on the shows and then we'd have a, a legend or a former WWE guy on top of it and it was insane, like, to me, like, there, there was times where it would kind of take me back. We'd be even, we'd be two, three weeks into a, a, a 30, 40-day tour, 
and we'd be halfway through it. It would still take me back, like in the middle of it, just typing out the card that night, going, holy shit, like these shows are stacked. Yeah. Like every single show has a main event guy from a major organization or another country in it. Like these shows are unreal. And that was that was kind of the frustrating. That was like the double-edged sword because these shows were so good. Um, and every one of them was. It didn't matter if it was in a major market like Winnipeg or Thunder Bay, where we'd have six, seven hundred people who were there to appreciate it, or if it was a hundred people in Moose and Saskatchewan, like the guys always delivered each and every night. And those shows were so fun and so incredibly a part of because the bar was raised in each and every match because you had a crew of professionals that gave a shit and took their work seriously. Um, but the other the double-edged sword of that was um, just seeing the cards we had lined up and the talent we had lined up and, and nobody's paying attention, you know, like if these shows were happening in the U S with this level of talent, they would be considered major super shows and people would be, you know, front and center for them. And mm-hmm. here, like they were giving us a lick of attention, <laughs> no matter how hard we tried. like they got our press releases. They know those shows were happening, but they're like, ah, they're up in Saskatchewan. Who gives a shit? <laughs> so there, there, that was a little frustrating at times to be building it as big as we did. And just knowing the quality of shows, like I would have put at that time, like I would put those shows up against any major independent in the States, hands down. And mm-hmm. like, we have, we have, we have a horse in the race here. Um, you know, that, that was the quality of them. One thing that like, it really, it's very Stampede-esque in my mind was, you know, you mentioned doing the tours, you know, where you, you have done many, you know, 30, 40 day ones. You've done a lot of shorter ones as well the past little bit, but it's something that it reminds me so much of Stampede, how they used to branch, go to towns that would never get wrestling. And it would be such a great environment for the fans, for the wrestlers, everyone involved, just a great experience overall. Yeah, I would, I would probably feel comfortable in saying like usually the best and most memorable shows are in some of the smallest markets that you would be surprised we even did an event in. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, those people are appreciative of the entertainment that comes to town because nothing comes through, <laughs> you know, nothing yeah. at all, not just no other wrestling. Like they're not getting musicians. They're not getting other forms of entertainment. Uh, so some of those markets end up being really special and magical in their own way because they do appreciate that you're bringing something to town. And then when you bring it to the level we do, uh, they definitely reciprocate it and they, they keep on bringing that support back. So that's something I'm really hopeful and we're slowly getting there. Things are slowly, you know, getting back to a place they need to be to get that model back up and running. Um, but yeah, it was very much like Stampede and that was kind of their success. You know, they were traveling the small town. You think you always think of the big markets they are doing Calgary, they're doing Edmonton and, and we have those too, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, the, it's the small ones in between that really make magic and, and make everything come together. Now I, I'm sure that it is a this next question is one that you could go on about for a bit, but putting together some of those tours, like what were some of the, what are some of the biggest difficulties that you have doing them? Like whether it's piecing together the dates or the talent for yourself, what issues do you kind of kind of come across? The the biggest issue is trust. Yeah. Um, in order to run, like I think at our biggest our biggest tour was set to be 38 days right before everything got closed down. I think the one prior to that was 36 and that was across five provinces. And the, the biggest, the biggest thing is trust because I have 36 local promoters that I have to depend on in order to make this work. Mm-hmm. Um, when CWE started in 2000, started doing tours in 2010, we were doing five or six days at a time. And back then I would go 
personally to each and every town. And I would spend a full day in every town doing the sponsorship and, and building connections in the community. And then I'd go back a couple of weeks later and do all the promotion and things of that nature. That's physically not possible when you're running five provinces and 38 different towns. So you have to enlist people that you can trust with your money and with your vision to go out there and do the legwork um, mm -hmm. because it takes a lot of work to make these shows successful at this, this stage. We don't have the budget to go and spend thousands of dollars in every market on TV and, and radio advertising. You would, you'd be broke and done after one tour. So your, your success is very dependent on your foot soldiers in those markets, drumming up local support from the businesses. And then of course, going and spreading the word and making sure everybody in town knows there's a show going on regardless of how big of a market is um so that's that's the biggest obstacle because there are times you know you're doing 38 dates six of those guys didn't carry their weight and now mm -hmm. you're showing up and there's 30 people here you've got 15 to 20 wrestlers to pay and you're looking at a pretty big loss that night and it's frustrating um nobody likes to lose that kind of money mm -hmm. <laughs> it's demoralizing to go in front of a smaller crowd when you feel you didn't need to because somebody didn't put in the work but it's a necessary evil and luckily more times are not you know four to five times you know we've got the right people in place that that make it happen for us um so that's that's the positive of it but that's that's definitely the biggest biggest one coordinating dates was definitely getting difficult um that's why near the end of uh you know going into 2020 we were doing before that we were doing like three or four tours a year yeah as we were going into 2020 we were doing two big ones of like 30 to 40 days so i have six months ahead where I can call the venues as needed. And there was a high likelihood that their dates would be wide open because nobody was booking that far ahead. Like now that we're, you know, going month to month, we're never sure at the, you know, this stage, if we're going to put restrictions in place, we don't want to commit too big of a tour yeah. just to find out we get shut down again or anything of that nature. And as we slowly build it back up, we got to kind of take these baby steps. So we're doing like, like, we just finished the Ontario tour this weekend. So now that it's done, we're working on the next Ontario tour two months from now. So everything's very, very close together now opposed to being so spread out in terms of planning. So you see some of those challenges coordinating dates. Cause now I have to try to get all five of those dates to line up geographically to work. And if one venue along the way doesn't have an opening, it's not cost effective to hop across the province and then hop back the other way, just to go back the same direction to meet the next town. So that definitely coordinating dates is a challenge. Um, but as the tours get bigger, they'll get more spread out to try to accommodate that. I, I definitely think that's one thing that a lot of fans don't uh, don't ever think about when it comes to booking a tour and all this, those little things that go into it. I know I've seen firsthand out in Saskatchewan, uh, Troy out there, some of the work he's done promoting you and just like he's done an incredible job just with the sponsorship and all of that just from what I've seen. So, I mean, it's it's oh. a lot of work. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a ton of work. Like it's a full-time, it's a, it's, I mean, I should say it's a full-time job, but it's a very, it's, it's a job with a lot of time, time commitment and responsibility in order to do right. Um, and Troy's great. Shout out to Troy. I, I love him to death. Um, I wish I had a Troy in every single market because what he does in Weyburn is absolutely spectacular. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I, I really, you know, and, and luckily we have a few more like him, but I wish I had a lot more uh, <laughs> because this thing would be a lot bigger, a lot faster if we had guys with, with his drive and his passion and his ability to rally the community. And that's exactly what you need in order to get things done. Um, you know, a lot of promoters are of the belief like, oh, if we promote or announce a big show, they will come. 
And it's not that easy, unfortunately. You can book a big star and say he's going to be in this building, but unless there's people going out and get people excited for it and, and rounding up the community to attend, it's going to fall flat. Yeah. So it's, it's very crucial to have guys like Troy and, and guys that work to the level of Troy in order for this to be successful. Uh, I've got a couple more for you, then I'll let you go. Um, a few, well, it, by the time this airs, it'll be a few weeks ago, uh, backstage at the Rob Stardom event. I had asked you a question about uh, the most memorable venue you wrestled in. You said Cork and Hall. I yes. had no idea that you had wrestled Cork and Hall. So I went back and looked and you had wrestled shows for DDT there. Yes. How did that come to be? Um, well, that was my third trip to Japan. I'd wrestled two trips there previously for Tajiri, once in 2010, and then once again a couple of years after that. Um, that trip specifically was 2018 at Cork Hall. And that was, once again, just due to the, uh, the idea and concept of bringing talent here to network our guys out. Um, right prior, a couple months prior to that, I think we had three wrestlers from DDT on tour with us mm -hmm. that did a cross country tour. So that was supposed to be the start of a working relationship between DDT and CWE, where they were going to continue to send their young talent over to do tours for us. And then in return, our talent would have the opportunity to go over there and wrestle for them. Um, so I was the first one to go over for what was supposed to be the first of multiple trips and for many trips for our talent. Um, unfortunately, uh, for everybody involved, DDT sold their company shortly after the different management <laughs> went a different direction with, with, uh, with their management. So that kind of came to a screeching halt. I went from wrestling uh, to DDT to having their talent scheduled to not even knowing who was running the company and making the decisions a few short months later. So it, uh, it was really frustrating. So it was a great opportunity for both brands. I know the, the Japanese talent really enjoyed being here and doing the tours. And I know our guys were really excited about opening some doors there. So yeah, it's one of those things where it's, you know, you get to like embrace the entire culture by doing something like that when, you know, some of the Japanese wrestlers come here and they're getting to experience, you know, smaller towns that they might not to do what, at the local scenes there and all of that. It's, you know, it's something new for them and just allows them to, you know, you know, brighten. I don't want to say brighten, but it's like changes their outlook on things too, instead of just being stuck, you know, like in a bubble, like, you know, a lot of Winnipeg wrestlers were in the early 2000s. Yeah, and that's, and that's why those guys came here, because the Japanese are infamous for sending their young talent that they have hope and promise for. They send them to North America on these excursions to learn different styles of pro wrestling so they can be effective top performers down the road for them in Japan. Um, because if you're you know, a wrestler who's a top prospect in Japan and you're only familiar with the Japanese style, you're not going to be very beneficial to them when they have to start working mm -hmm. the main events against the top American talent, the top Mexican talent, Canadian talent for example. So, so they have done that. Like DDT had sent, you mentioned Kaiomiya. That was from Noah sending mm -hmm. him here shortly prior to that. Back in 2010, they sent Kushida here from, from, for, yeah. for as well. He did the same thing. Uh, Manabu Soya from all Japan pro wrestling. He did a stint with us. So we've been very lucky where we've had relationships with I think three or four different Japanese groups over the years that have sent their talent here to do some honing we had the same we had the same another you know what could have been um the tour right before that got shut down the 38-day tour that got canceled in march 2020 we had the same arrangement that was going to be put in place with ring of honor they were sending up um they had sent up brian johnson um they had sent up a tag team they're, they're they're escaping my name at the moment i think they're in AEW now moses and 
I, I think I know the two, the the Gates of Agony guys. Yeah, yeah, they were scheduled to do a tour with us. Um, and they were being sent by Ring of Honor in their dojo. And there was, I believe, one more that was supposed to come up on that trip as well. And that was going to be the start of Ring of Honor sending their their developmental talent on tour across Canada with us. And then in exchange, we would send some guys down to do, you know, the odd Ring of Honor show and get our guys some experience that we'd be able to benefit from saying that our talent was wrestling for Ring of Honor on our events. Um, so there was a lot of really cool synergy that was taking place that I'm, I'm hopeful one day we can resume to. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've been a fixture of the Winnipeg wrestling scene for over 20 years. You, you've seen it all. Um, has there been anything that surprised you positively or negatively throughout your time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, nothing surprises me anymore (laughs) um um, one thing that continues to surprise me like and it it was it's an issue we've been dealing with this year is just like the constant um quote-unquote politics that take place in in winnipeg and independent wrestling as a whole i don't even want to call them that because i don't think they are i think it's just stupidity um when i broke in like i said in 99 2000 there was a very much a mentality of us versus them. Um, and I think that was very much driven because that's what was popular in the national wrestling narrative. You had the Monday night wars. It was WCW versus WWF. So like when I broke in in the late nineties, early two thousands, all these promoters and promotions had the same mentality where it's like, we got to go and cut the throat of the other guy. Um, prior to the pandemic, we had pretty much axed that, that had like, then that was after years of work. Like for a long time, if you wrestled for one promoter, you didn't wrestle for another. And that was something that we broke 10 years ago with CWE. Cause I never agreed and believed in that. Um, so that was something we worked very hard to break that exclusivity. Um, and then, and then over the years, there was still always that, that infighting, but you know, prior to the pandemic, we had, I think pretty much eliminated like even myself for the first time in over 10 years wrestled for PCW a couple times prior to everything shutting down, which is something I never thought would happen again. Uh, but things have become friendly and everybody was kind of on the same page, not necessarily working together, but in the agreement, we're not going to try to screw the other guy at the benefit yeah. of our own show. Um, so that was something that was nice to finally see. And as a result, everybody was kind of flourishing like WPW just started. They were doing really well. Uh, PCW was doing well. We were, and it was proven that hey, you don't have to be an asshole to have a successful show and hurt somebody else in order to do it. So it was nice to see that actually come to fruition and, and be displayed. Um, since coming back from COVID, it's kind of backtracked a little bit where we're getting some of that silliness again that we've kind of had to set straight and put some people in their place and say, no, 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 we're not going back to that. So I, I was surprised this year because I thought coming out of COVID. Um, and just the excitement of doing shows again, we would jump right back in the saddle of having some unity and, and, and positivity within the industry. So I think we're, I think we're getting back there again. I think there's a couple bumps in the road, but ultimately we're, we're back on that track. Um, but that's ultimately, that's, that's been one thing that surprised me over the years that, that people really live and die by that sword mm-hmm. of just developing this us versus them mentality. Like it's a tribalism you see in multiple aspects of society now yeah. like the social media. It's like, it's not completely foreign just to be in wrestling. Um, but that's one thing I can attest to, um, you know, now having promoted for almost 14 years and having wrestled for 20, it's never a benefit to one promoter to screw another. It just hurts the industry as a whole. You don't necessarily have to like another promoter. You don't necessarily have to support what he's doing, but going out of your way to be a detriment to his events and try to stop them or cancel them or 
um, prevent talent from working on them, things of that nature. It never works out in your benefit. It's all it's all a dick waving contest that really really mounts to nothing and just creates more frustrations and stress in a business that's very tough to succeed in as it is. So I'm I'm really hopeful moving forward that that we can continue to get back to the positivity of the business of, Hey, you do your thing. I'll do mine. If we can work together. Great. If not good luck, uh, not, Hey, this guy's running this show. Let's go try to, you know, put one right across the street the same day or the next night, or let's call his venue and try to cancel it. Or let's, you know, let's things of that nature, or let's tell our talent they can't work there. So they can only like, just, I'm, I'm really hopeful that that stays in the past and we can kind of nip that in the bud from becoming a problem again um, because it has been shown that the business can prosper when everyone's just doing what's best for themselves and not trying to be a detriment to, to anyone else i you had mentioned you know like working the pcw shows after thinking you wouldn't ever again and i know like as a fan then i wasn't i, I didn't really pay too too much attention to the you know behind the scenes stuff uh but i i always thought you know like okay cwe guys will never work on pcw and i remember seeing you versus sean moore on a card and being absolutely blown away one because i saw you there and two seeing you wrestle sean moore and it was just an incredible match and here i am being able to watch this okay this is what i want to see you know that you know you can see the crossover and things like that you know it's a benefit for everyone involved yeah and, and I, I understand, like, as a promoter, I would love if you could only see guys wrestle at my shows. Like, I see the, I understand the thinking behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's great. If these guys are exclusive right here, you have to pay to see them here. But I, I found in my time, it never translates like that. The, the fans of Winnipeg Wrestling go to support Winnipeg Wrestling. They're not going for one specific individual local performer. Mm-hmm. If that is the case, it's because that individual local promo- or performer is selling tickets directly to his family and friends. And that's the only people that are going to be affected by him being on one show or not the other. Um, but in terms of the overall Winnipeg wrestling fan base, if you've got a show that they want to see and you promote it effectively and you give them an attraction they want to watch, they'll go and watch regardless of what the three letters are in front of it. Um, so like, that's like, I've never asked my talent not to work for another show. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's never like, like that was like policy that I fought. Like that, that was, a, you know, not to go backtrack, but like that was, a, that was another small reason why cwe started because at that time you had to wrestle for one promotion and not the other we always thought that was really silly Mm -hmm. especially for us young guys that were trying to get as good as we possibly could to try to get opportunities elsewhere you only get good at this job getting your reps in and if you're only wrestling one show a month for one company you're not going to get very good or at least the level you need to so we always thought it was really silly to kind of handcuff yourself when there was opportunities to wrestle for multiple shows, especially if they're in different ends of the city, you know, one's a bar show, one's an all age show. Like, there's, there isn't, you know, a ton of crossover. So I've never asked my talent, like, Hey, don't, don't go and wrestle there. I've never told them that. Um, I think the only time it's ever come up is there's been, you know, there's been times where promoters were doing some of that shady business we were talking about yeah. a minute ago where I said, Hey, I'm not going to tell you where, where you can and can't wrestle, but if guys are being a detriment to the business and trying to affect where you're making money here, then we need to hold them accountable and say, Hey, until mm-hmm. you cut that shit out, we can't wrestle here. Yeah. And I think that's fair. Oh, like I, if, 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 if I, if I'm going out, if I'm going out of my way to try to screw another promoter, I can understand why he wouldn't want, you know, his talent wrestling on my show and, and, and vice versa. And that's where it goes back to if everyone just minds their own business and focuses on their own company. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about any of that kind of stuff. And that's what I've, that, you know, that's a realization I had a long time ago as long as you put forth the effort into your own brand and you present a product that people want to see, they'll, they'll show up. 
And that's that really is what it comes down to. If they don't show up, it has nothing to do with that other promoter down the street. That has to do with you not putting on an attraction that they wanted to come and see that day. It wasn't a priority. Might have still been a great show, but it wasn't a focus or priority mm-hmm. or or something that they had to go do first and foremost. So um, I'm a big, big believer of that. Yeah, uh, 100%. I think if you are putting on a show and you aren't getting the response, the reception, then it's not necessarily the fans. It's what you are doing and doing something to bring them in. There's enough, enough fans, enough dollars, uh, entertainment dollars to be spent in Winnipeg that if you do something that attracts the fans, they will come out, they will support it and show yep. you have a viable product. 100%. And and there there is some validity to like people only have so much money to spend and I understand mm-hmm. that as well. Like I'm I'm very realistic of all aspects being a promoter that has done probably close to 700 events now. Like this year in Winnipeg at one point there was four companies running. There was almost a show every single week. Mm-hmm. As a promoter, that sucks because that's that you're competing with a lot and people only have so much money to spend. Um, you know, so I, I did understand that, oh, this could be, you know, this could have a negative effect on business because there's a show every single week, with mostly the same wrestlers. So people are going to, you know, decide, well, we, we you know, don't have to go to that one because we can go to this one or this one's more convenient and people will pick and choose. But at the same time, I'm realistic with, okay, that means me as a promoter have to step up my game and make uh-huh. sure that my show is presenting something those guys are not. So it's a no decision. And if they are deciding to go somewhere else instead of mine, that's on me. That's not on that guy running his business and making money for him and his family because he has every right to do it. And that's like another thing that I, you know, a mentality that I really think needs to break. Like every, every single different type of genre of business in Winnipeg has multiple, multiple businesses running and selling the same product. Um, It's up, it's up to you to stand out and provide something for the customer that the other guy's not in order to succeed. And if you don't, that ultimately falls on you. 100%. Um, I like to ask everyone I talk to, and you are no exception for a match recommendation that you think the listener should go check out, whether it's on YouTube or WWE Network, just one that you are a fan of that you think that they should go watch. Mm -hmm. Like one of my own or just one in general? One in general. One in general. If If you want it to be one of your own, you can I don't watch mine. Mine are horrible. Um, um, one of my favorite matches of all time, if you can track it down, it's probably available on the network now, is the Brain Busters versus the Rockers. It's one of the best tag team matches you'll ever see, and it's one I always recommend to people trying to learn and figure out tag team wrestling. It is absolutely brilliant. But then so, again, everything Arn and Tolly do is. So you can go. You can't go wrong with any Arn and Tolly tag team match. But that, that one specifically, I, I can't remember if it's – the garden or the Boston garden, if it's, you know, Madison square garden or Boston garden, I think they've done one of both on that loop, but there's like one specifically that's very infamous. That's just incredible. Was it a pay-per-view match? It wasn't. It was a house no. show. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And it was really good. There's like a lot of like different matches. I recommend for like different reasons. Like another, another match that like nobody would ever guess to watch that I always recommend to guys in terms of how to make a baby face look like a million dollars. Mr. Perfect's my favorite wrestler of all time. He's, incredible he's perfect he's the perfect wrestler mm-hmm. so it was the perfect gimmick but there's a match i believe is from madison square garden from like 1989 and it's mr perfect versus hulk hogan and hulk hogan has never looked so good in his life than he did in the ring with mr perfect and it's a perfect example of what a heel's job is and how it's their job and and responsibility to get a baby face over not that hulk hogan needed any help getting over uh but 
he never looked as good as he did in there with Mr. Perfect, who, who flew around the ring for him and made him look fantastic. So that's another match I always recommend to people because it's a hidden gem uh, that you wouldn't think of, you know, just looking out on paper going, hey, I have to watch that. But for, for different reasons, you should. Some of my favorite ones were the Mr. Perfect Bret Hart ones, you know, the SummerSlam, the King of the Ring, like they two different matches, but both very incredible. So, yeah. And another one when we're talking Mr. Perfect, it's, you know, for, for some generations, it's probably passed them by. Uh, but there's another really good Kurt Henning match from the AWA that I always recommend. It's him and Nick Bockwinkle, and they go an hour. And normally an hour is a long time to sit through a match from the 1980s um, if you don't get the right mix in there. But that one is absolutely incredible and really, really foreshadows how good Mr. Perfect's going to end up being in his years to come. Uh, I just watched the the tale of the territories they did on AWA, um, and I was disappointed they didn't talk more about Kurt Henning and his time there. But I guess you know just sharing stories. But I would love for more of a deep dive into the AWA because they had such an impact in Winnipeg and all through the Midwest. But yeah, it's crazy. Like it's starting to ease up a little bit now because that generation is getting older. But like I remember when CWE first started in two thousand nine and two thousand ten, and I'd go on the road to different towns. I couldn't not go somewhere and be like, oh, hey, we're bringing wrestling to town and somebody not have an AWA story to tell. Like it left a very, very big impression on the people of Winnipeg and Manitoba in general who grew up on the AWA. And it's one I never really fully understood until actually getting out there on the ground and doing it myself because I was born in 87 and AWA folded in 1990, 91. Yeah. So all my knowledge and, and, uh, all my knowledge of, of the AWA was watching it on tape, like way after, not in real time. But it was it's amazing to, to go into these small towns and go talk to a business owner who's in his 40s, 50s, 60s. And they all have a story about the Bruiser and the Crusher and Baron Von Raschke. And they all they all have a story that makes them light up for the time that Andre the Giant came to town. So it, it, it definitely uh, it definitely left a very, very positive impression on a lot of people in this area. Danny, for those listening, if they're not following you on social media, where can they find you? They can find me uh, Hotshot Danny Duggan on Facebook, at Hotshot Danny D on Facebook, or sorry, on Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. Danny, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. Anytime, my friend. I appreciate having you. Thank you so much to Hotshot Danny Duggan for joining me on the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast for this 100th episode. I really appreciate him taking time out of his day to chat wrestling and share the stories throughout his career so far. So thank you so much to him. Thank you to the listeners as well for checking out the podcast. I know I said it at the beginning, but I always say it at the end. So thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to me talk about wrestling. If it's your first time listening, you can find me up on Twitter at GrainmakerPod. Uh, email GrainmakerPodcast at gmail.com. Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and up on all podcast streaming platforms. And because who knows what's going on with Twitter, I'm up on Hive as well. So that seems to be the new venture, Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast up there. I think it's Grainmaker Podcast, if I'm not mistaken. But check me out up on there as well. And I got t-shirts for sale, 25 bucks a piece. They make a great Christmas present as well. So hit me up if you're interested. I'll get you a shirt. And uh, you can look very fashionable this winter, or you can give a a very lovely Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast t-shirt as a gift. I know I would love to get one if I was a wrestling fan. So maybe maybe kick one to a, kick, kick one to a friend, you know, just saying. Thanks again for checking out the podcast. 
Thank you for all of your support for the past 100 episodes. I'm very excited for the future and the next 100. We'll talk soon.